Well, there are certain risks that everyone who takes, who ventures out on the water, uh, no one really is exempt. When we venture out on the water, in one sense, we're venturing out into an element that is not our own, an environment in which we were not originally designed to uh, exist with ease. And so we don't breathe water well, right? I mean, we do sometimes breathe water, but it doesn't go well. And, and, um, and that's even true in a calm body of water like the Bay of Bellingham. Bellingham Bay and in a still and quiet sort of a body of water, even there, water can be a tricky environment. Melissa and I went down to Zawanich Park there on Bellingham Bay, from which this picture is taken, and, uh, and we observed the sparkling waves and the islands floating out in the sound, and even the Olympic mountains that you can see there beyond the islands, clear out on the peninsula. It was a calm day, a beautiful, peaceful day day, but it's not always like that. There are days when the wind is whipping and the storms are raging and the water is dangerous to be out on. And, and I noticed that as we were there, there's a monument standing in the park that really commemorates that danger that is out on the water, even a calm body of water like Bellingham Bay and the Puget Sound. It's titled, you may have seen it, Safe return. And it has a fisherman on top of a pedestal, and on all four sides of the pedestal are inscribed words, and many of those words are actually names, names of people who did not have a safe return, who went out upon the water and never came home. Around the monument also are inscribed some some words that uh, commemorate what we wish for those who go out upon the water. It says, in memory of fishers who have gone to sea in pursuit of their livelihood, never to return. And then on the front it says, safe return. And in my mind, the monument really serves two particular purposes. First of all, it remembers those whose lives were lost on the sea and it warns all those who would go out to sea that there is danger to take care in exercising watery pursuits. Because really, those who go to sea, even across a lake, are always, in one sense, taking their lives in their hands. A while back, a group of fishermen and some of their friends boarded a boat after a full day of work. They were tired, but the weather was favorable. They were looking forward to a refreshing night of sleep, so they bent their minds and their muscles to the task at hand with a will born of anticipation. They were almost done. Rest was coming soon. They were midway to their destination when a storm came up. I don't know what it was that first signaled to them that there was a change in the weather. Maybe it was a puff of wind out of nowhere, or, or maybe it was just a few drops of rain, or... Maybe they spotted some clouds scudding across the face of the moon. I don't know what it was, but I do know that they couldn't ignore the fact that there was a change for very long. Because what began perhaps as a puff of wind grew to a gale. Now, I'm not a, uh, a boatsman, and I haven't spent a great deal of time on the water other than swimming in fairly sheltered places. But I believe the idea of a boat is to keep water out. 
And I'm, I'm fairly confident that that's true, even from a landlubber's perspective. So it was a problem when this boat, now assailed by such a great gale, such fierce winds and such strong waves, began filling with water as wave after wave crashed over the side of the boat. I don't know exactly what these men were doing to compensate for the incoming water, probably bailing, possibly rowing. They were trying everything that they could do to get out of this predicament that they were in. It was a king storm. It was a storm to tell your grandchildren about if you live to tell. You might almost imagine the glint of one of these men's eyes as he maybe sits around a fire many years later and, and tells the story to his grandchildren. He says, I was out on the sea with my friends many years ago when one of the biggest storms I had ever seen sprang up from nowhere. We bailed water out, but it came in even faster. We were drenched. We were exhausted. The boat was heaving and rolling with the tempest. We figured we were goners. We did have one passenger on board that night. He made the 13th of our number. He had been working all day, too, on land, teaching, and he was tired, even tireder than we were. He was so tired, in fact, he had fallen asleep in the stern of the boat. I haven't seen too many people able to sleep like he could. It was crazy, really, when you think about it. He did not wake up through the tossing waves and through the roar of the wind and the crash of the water. Here I was, an experienced fisherman. He, a relative novice on the water, acted like he didn't have a care in the world. Actually, he didn't have a care in the world, at least not about the storm. He slept on. When we had done all we could to save ourselves, we did the only thing, the last thing we could think to do. We woke our passenger. And we yelled at him above the noise and fury of the tempest. We, we cried out aloud, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? You'll have to believe me when I tell you what happened next because it defies everything I know about the weather. The teacher woke up and he spoke to the wind and to the water. Yes, he actually talked to the storm. And he said these words. Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. It was like somebody had flipped a switch. Suddenly the elements stopped raging, the boat stopped pitching and rolling, and the calm was palpable. That's a true story, not just a story in imagination or even the story of an ordinary experience known by sailors and fishermen today. This is the story that we find in three different places in the Synoptic Gospels. Each of the Synoptic Gospels tells a little different part of this story of Jesus and his disciples in the boat with a terrific storm, a storm to tell their grandchildren about. And they did more than tell their grandchildren, for all three of these accounts have told not only the grandchildren, but the grandchildren's grandchildren, all the way down till we read these, this story today. The story of Jesus, master of the elements, calming those very elements which he had made. I want to show you how it plays out in the three different Gospels, so that you can catch a little of the different flavor that each one of them presents for us. In Luke chapter 8, it says that when Jesus awoke, he rebuked 
the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. So I want you to note that that's the first thing that we see in the book of Luke, that Jesus rebuked the wind and the raging waves. He spoke to them and gave them his command of absolute and complete authority. In Mark, we get a little different twist because it gives words to what the rebuke actually was. We aren't told what the words were in Luke chapter 8, but we are told in Mark chapter 4, it says he awoke, Jesus awoke, and he rebuked the wind and the sea, and this is what he said, peace be still. So we know from Luke that Jesus rebuked with a command of authority the wind and the waves. We know from Mark that he used specific words to give that command. He said, peace be still. And we get something different yet in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 26. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 26, we learn what Jesus' rebuke really meant, for it had two edges. And he, Jesus, said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? So speaking not now to the waves and to the wind, but to the disciples themselves and saying, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he, Jesus, rose and he rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm. Now from each of those, we glean a little different perspective on this story We understand that Jesus speaks with a word of command, that his word of command has specific words, peace be still. And we learn from Matthew that Jesus did something before he spoke to the wind and the waves. And that is he talked to the disciples and gave them the first edge of his rebuke. Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And it's with these two verse, these three verses in mind, these three different perspectives on that experience, that uh, I want to take you to these promises that Jesus has given to us in John chapter 14 and John chapter 16. It's in chapter 14, verse 27, and in chapter 16, verse 33 of the book of John. So what is this peace, really? What is this peace that Jesus promises? Notice again in Matthew chapter 8 that Jesus speaks in a sense peace before he even said the word peace. He addressed the nature and the issue with no peace in the disciples who were lacking peace, who were fearing before he actually addressed their circumstances and gave them a perfect sea to sail in. So what does this peace mean? look like in John chapter 14, verse 27. This is what Jesus says. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not the, as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now continuing in the same uh, passage, really, but over a chapter or two, in John chapter 16, Jesus continues the idea, and he says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So what really does peace look like in its natural habitat? And I want to give you several perspectives based on these two verses, John 14, 27 and John 16, 33, that help us to gather the idea of what's taking place when we're talking about peace, what does peace really look like when we find it in, in reality? And so the very first is that peace is 
Jesus' legacy. Peace is Jesus' legacy. This is what he says in the first part of verse 27 of chapter 14. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. So think about this. As we enter into chapter 14 through 16 and 17, these are, in a very real sense, Jesus' final instructions to his disciples before he goes to the cross. So these are among the final words that he wants to give to us to experience the peace of God. So he's giving this as, in a sense, my final gift, my parting gift to you, Jesus says. My farewell gift is peace. Now, it's not just any peace. This is a peace that Jesus has authority to give because it is coming from his personal supply. So when we talk about peace, we tend to think about the serenity of my outward circumstances. The things that are happening in my life are going well. The sailing is smooth. But what Jesus gives is not precisely about outward circumstances being smooth. It's about experiencing not just a peace, but the peace of Jesus himself. That's what he gave. He didn't give a gift of smooth outward circumstances here at the beginning of John chapter 14, verse 27. He gave the gift of experiencing the same quality of peace that he himself experienced. Now think about, again, where Jesus is. He is literally on the road to the cross. What a strange place for a person to talk about peace. Or maybe it's not a strange place, but it is a testimony to the power of a peace which supersedes the power of the fear of death. That's what Jesus is giving to you. That's his legacy that he leaves to his disciples and all those who follow him. My peace, that peace which is my personal possession, I give to you. Not a peace of smooth outward circumstances, of serenity and all that you experience, but a peace which can stand against the greatest of fears, yes, even the fear of death. This my peace, Jesus says, I give to you. Jesus' personal peace through this promise becomes our personal possession. It is his gift to us. And because he has the right to give it to us, we can actually own it. So that's the first thing. Peace is Jesus' legacy. But also peace comes in two different species. If you look down at 1427 and look a little bit further, you'll read these words. Not, Jesus says, not as the world gives do I give to you. So I'm going to I'm giving you a peace which is mine to give. It is my very personal possession. This peace I give to you, but it is unlike the peace that the world gives. Now that's interesting. Uh, we see that here in this phrase, not as the world gives do I give to you. We find that the world does offer a peace. So catch this. Implied in this statement is the fact that the world actually does offer peace. You may have heard it said. You may have said it yourself. I have no idea how a person without Christ can face this crisis in life. You ever heard that said or thought it or said it? Yeah. And there's some truth to it. But let me tell you, I think I know the answer. And the answer is that the world does offer a form of peace. It offers anesthesia to dull the pain of standing before the eye of God. 
It covers up the things that make us concerned about what will yet come. It distracts us from the fear of death. But notice, it never resolves any of the problems. It simply covers them up. We've become a society more and more removed even from death because, frankly, it's ugly to look at. That's part of the world's peace. We try to do things that cover up our problems. That's part of the world's peace. The world offers escape from the eye of God. It offers anesthesia to dull the pain of being out of step with him. All the way from drugs to philanthropy, from religious compensation to philosophy, the world provides a form of peace that helps people cope with life. But Jesus' peace, Jesus' peace is a peace that centers on him alone. It's administered by the spirit of peace to those whom Jesus has made the children of peace by his blood. In the hour of crisis, the children of peace look to the prince of peace. They see the invisible God and they triumph. If God is for us, who can be against us? To guilt and shame, they announce, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. To the specter of death, to the rigors of life, to the enemies of their bodies and souls, to distress, to neediness, to danger, to everything else that every evil could ever contrive against them, they proclaim, nothing can ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord." The world offers a peace, but the peace of Jesus is of an entirely different quality. You can experience a peace to cope with life. It's pretty thin, kind of like a veneer over a very rotten core. But there is some veneer. If you want a peace that is all the way to the center then you must experience this peace which Jesus promises, that which is his personal possession he offers to you, a peace which does not stand on the basis of quality circumstances, but on the basis of Jesus' own gift. Peace also is the antidote to fear. Continuing on, verse 27 of chapter 14, the book of John, Jesus makes this statement on the basis of peace. So based on this peace that I'm giving to you, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus is making a statement here in this section, and he's saying essentially, I am, not, I am leaving you, but it won't be forever. He's saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house. And he's saying, Get this, you can count on it. I'm telling you the truth. It's interesting that this verse 27 actually flips us all the way back, back to verse 1 of John chapter 14, in which Jesus specifically says, again, like an echo, let not your hearts be troubled. But here he gives a little different twist to it. So in 27 he says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. But in verse 1 he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Here we are. Believe in God, believe also in me. So this connection to peace, this peace which Jesus offers from his own personal possession, is ours as we believe in the Son of God in the middle of our experience. So peace is really the antidote to fear. Going to chapter 16 and verse 33, we find that peace comes from one spring, 
If you're looking at chapter 16 and verse 33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that, catch this, in me you may have peace. In me you may have peace. One source for this peace. Alexander McLaren, a preacher from the a late eight, or from the early 1800s, early or yeah, about early ni- 1826 to 1910. There, we'll just give his lifespan. He said this. He said this. Here, without any contradiction, in this passage, 1633, our Lord brackets together these two opposite. Uh, well, excuse me. I'm I'm reading from a different section here. He brackets together these two opposite conditions as both pertaining to the life of a devout soul. He promises peace. Here we are which coexists with tribulation and disturbance. Catch what he's saying. A peace which coexists with tribulation and disturbance. A peace which is realized in and through conflict and struggle. That's the peace Jesus is promising. A peace which is put together with that which is unpeace, that which is dispeace, that which is not peace. Jesus promises a peace that stands in the middle of tribulation and disturbance. He goes on to say, in the fortress, imagining us in that peace, in the fortress, beleaguered by the sternest foes, there may be, right in the very center of the citadel, a quiet chapel through whose thick walls the noise of battle and the shout of victory or defeat can never penetrate. So, he says, we may live in the center of rest, however wild may be the uproar in the circumference. In me, says McLaren, in me, Jesus speaking, peace, that is, in the innermost life. In the world, bracketed to the other idea that Jesus puts together in this passage, in the world, tribulation. And I love this that he says, that is only the surface. In me, in the innermost life, peace, Jesus offers. In the world, there will be tribulation, but that is only the surface. Peace is also the result of knowing the end of the story, continuing in verse 33 of chapter 16. In the world, you will have tribulation, Jesus says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. There is nothing like knowing the end of the story of the story for having a secure and certain peace. Now, when I was a boy, my literary tastes were really deep. I loved the Hardy Boys, and I read everything I could get my hands on by Franklin W. Dixon. That was the pseudonym by which a number of authors wrote uh, for the Hardy Boys. It was not a very deep literary love, but I did love those books intensely. We would travel up my little dirt lane in Penryn to the little tiny, and I mean tiny, library in Penryn, Uh, just a a mile or two down the road in what was maybe the city center, which was composed of a post office and a library, and that was about it. And on hot summer days, we would go to that library, and over to the right of the librarian's desk, that wasn't very far, we're talking a few feet away, uh, was the whole row of all the Hardy Boys that I could get my hands on. And every time I'd find a new one, I would pick it up. I actually ended up doing myself a real disservice by reading those, perhaps in addition to the literary quality. Uh, But I did the disservice of teaching myself to read slowly because I loved them so much that I savored them and wanted to drag out the story. 
For those of you who have not been so blessed as to read the Hardy Boys, one of the things that you can know about them is that the plot is always the same. It's always the same. Frank and Joe, two adventurous young men, one 16, one 17, one with dark hair, one with light hair, had a father, a famous detective father named Fenton Hardy. And Fenton Hardy uh, was often kind of a sidebar to the story. The real heroes of the story were Frank and Joe. And so this 16 and 17-year-old were somehow always winding up in the middle of a crime. Not doing the crime, but trying to stop those who were doing the crime. And often it ended up going through some pretty perilous circumstances. Would they drown in their boat, the sleuth? Or would they get in trouble in their convertible? Or would they have some kind of, would they be, they were almost always knocked out at some point in time. I don't know how much brain damage they had by the time they got to 19, but (laughs) they were almost always knocked out somewhere along the way. And often they were chloroformed and uh, put down. And they were often bound and gagged. But we knew this. I could love every moment of all the peril because I knew they were going to win. I knew it from the beginning of every single story, and there's well over 40 of them. From the beginning of every story, I knew that somehow, some way, some unimaginable event would occur, and Frank and Joe would come out on top, and the bad guys would go to prison. Man, I love that. Listen, that's the nature of the peace that here Jesus offers to you. It is a great adventure story, and it often looks like we're going to lose. Like, this, like the whole world of dis-peace is actually going to win the day. Like my personal tumult will take me down. But Jesus here in verse 33 of chapter 16 says this. Yes, you will have tribulation. But take heart. You know who is going to win. And so there's a great peace in that reality. We know that peace is Jesus' legacy, that it comes in two species, that it's the antidote to fear. It comes from only one spring. And we know peace because we know the end of the story. Now, I want to take you a little closer into this piece, kind of get a microscope on it, and go back to that story of Jesus in the boat and consider again some of the things that happened there in a little different perspective than maybe you've thought about before, so that we can get a better grip on how to connect to this peace ourselves. This is, in fact, Jesus' promise, so if it is true that it is his promise, and it is, then why am I not experiencing it? And the first thing we want to note is that the presence of Jesus in the middle of the storm is only half the equation. I ask you a question this morning. Where was Jesus when that storm came up and the disciples were on the boat in the middle of the lake? He was in the boat. Did that stop them from being afraid? No. No. It did not happen that way. The presence of Jesus in the middle of the storm is very important. If you do not have the presence of Jesus in your personal experience right now, then there is no hope for peace for you. Nothing more than the shallow veneer of the world's peace. So the, pe- the presence of Jesus is very important, but it's not the whole equation. You have to somehow have some way that you are connecting to the presence of Jesus in the middle of your personal experiences, in the middle of your storm. So the disciples were actually with Jesus in the middle of the storm. Jesus is not just a lucky talisman. Really. A cross around your neck is not going to save you. Even knowing the true presence of Jesus in your experience 
is not the whole story. Do you remember the story when in the Old Testament, Eli was the priest and Samuel was a boy? And the Philistines started defeating the Israelites in that day. And they killed about 4,000 of them. And that was when the Israelites had a stroke of genius. We got it. We know what we're going to do. We're going to get the ark. And we're going to take the ark with us into the battle. And because we have the ark of God, which was the symbol of the presence of God, because we have the ark of God, surely that will win the day. They took it like a lucky rabbit's foot into the battle. And do you remember what happened next? Well, the Israelites raised a great shout, and the Philistines shook in their boots, and the fighting commenced. Surely this time, this time the battle would go in favor of the people of God. But the Bible says, and there was a very great slaughter for their fellow of Israel. Get this, 30,000 foot soldiers. It's a lot of folks that died that day. And not only did all those people die, but the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, the priest, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Look, the very worst of the very worst happened, and somehow this symbol of the presence of God that they had taken with them into battle, like some kind of a talisman of success, actually was captured too. The presence of God in the middle of my experience is not the whole story. God is not looking to be your lucky talisman. God is not a respecter of persons. They had, they had great sin in the camp. In fact, it was within the priesthood. And Hophni and Phinehas, these sons of Eli the priest, were those who were at the fore of the sin problem. So... They needed not only to recognize divine power by bringing the ark with them. That's a good thing to recognize that there is power in the presence of God. But more than that, they needed to connect to it. And they were stopped from connecting with the divine power of God by the sin problem, which was occurring right in the house of God. So had the presence of God lost its power? I mean, was the ark no longer a useful instrument or a demonstration of the fact that our God is a great and powerful God? Well, ask the Philistines about that. They took the ark into the house of Dagon, their God, and you might remember that the next morning, Dagon was laying face down on the, on the floor, the threshold, in front of the ark. Well, the Philistines thought, we'll fix that, and they put him back up. And the next morning, Dagon was face down on the floor, and his hands and his head were cut off. So that only a trunk remained of the idol, which was a dumb and deaf idol. But as if that were not enough, they then started taking the ark to their cities. And every place that the ark went, the people broke out with terrible tumors and death. Had God's ark symbol of his presence lost any of its power? Oh no. But the people of God had lost connection to the God of the power. And they had lost the ability to experience the very peace that God had for them. So think about this again as we go back to the disciples in the boat. Jesus was actually with them in the boat. Now I get there's another story in the New Testament that you can read about where Jesus was not in the boat. And he came walking to them on the water. You remember that story. But in this case, Jesus was there the whole time. But his presence in the boat was not the whole equation. They personally had to connect to the presence of God and the peace that Jesus offered. I think sometimes we stumble about there. 
Also, there's a difference between peace and tumult, and that difference is in Jesus' word of rebuke. Remember that, again, Jesus' rebuke had two edges, one for the storm, peace be still, and one for the disciples, where is your faith? The waves instantly obeyed their master, but it was a process of growing for the disciples. And for us, too, it is a process of growing in faith by the grace of God. They had to conclude, the disciples had to conclude that Jesus was enough for their circumstances wherever they were and whatever they were experiencing. They were still learning to rely on and trust the nature of God. They said, what sort of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So the difference between peace and tumult is Jesus' words of rebuke. Two sides toward our circumstances and toward our often faithless hearts. And we find that there is a time to seek peace. I don't know if you noticed it in the story, but the disciples did exactly what I would have done. And maybe what you would have done. They worked very hard to overcome their circumstances. Like really hard. And remember, these men were tired already. This is night. They've worked all day. You can see how tired they were by the example of Jesus, who is so tired he's sleeping through the whole thing. They were very tired, but instead of just connecting to divine power to experience peace in the middle of their storm, they worked really hard. You ever do that? Work really hard to conquer my own circumstances, and then when we get to the last gasp of hope, oh, well, then I call on God. So it's really important as we look at this under the microscope to realize that there, is, there really is a difference between peace and tumult, and it's in Jesus' rebuke, but then there's also a time to seek peace, and the time to seek peace is now. The time to seek peace is right now, wherever you are. If, you're, if your sea is calm, it's a good time to seek peace. If you are in the middle of a storm, this is a good time to seek peace from the one who has the power to rebuke your wind and waves. And then really the summary of these as we look under the microscope is that there is a connection to this experience of peace and that is faith. They knew that the story could not end up in them drowning if they thought about it. Not with the master of the sea succumbing to his own waves. The connection to peace is through faith in the prince of peace. The disciples actually failed to note that Jesus had already affirmed the success of their mission. He'd promised success because he said, let us go to the other side of the lake. Jesus did not say, let us go to the middle of the lake and drown. And, and I think sometimes we think that Jesus maybe has forgotten that he is saying really in a sense, in my experience, I think I'm going to take you out there and then I'm going to see how well you swim. That's not what he's doing. Jesus is out for your good. He wants to bring you peace in the middle of your tumult. He wants to bring you the peace which is his personal possession right where you are at. When is a good time to seek peace? How about right now? And how are we going to do that? By taking hold of the promises of God by faith. So I'd like to explore this connection between our troubles and Jesus' peace a little bit further. How how then can we experience Jesus' calm in the middle of 
our life's storms. And to do that, I think it's helpful to identify why we aren't experiencing peace. So to diagnose for us what it is that stands between us and the peaceful experience we say that we desire. Here are several of the common roadblocks to peace. And the first is double-mindedness regarding the peace of God. In James chapter 1, we're told about the double-minded man. We're told that he's unstable. He is lacking a peaceful, still, calm experience in all his ways. And the reason he's double-minded is because he has one eye on God and one eye on himself or other people or his circumstances. He is double-minded in all his ways. And James, he's particularly saying that his experience of double-mindedness reflects in the fact that he has he says he has faith in God, but he actually is, in a sense, putting his faith in himself. So he says, let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavers is like, oh, get this, a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. That's the way James describes this person. He is like a wind-driven wave, totally lacking any form of peace. Why? Because his eye is in one hand on God, and on the other, his eye is really not on God. It's on self-reliance. The single-minded person, the person whose attention is captivated by God alone, is not daunted by the waves uh, without uh, waves outside when the Lord Jesus is within. But we get caught with one eye on the world's peace and one eye on the peace of God. And it turns out when we do that, we aren't any good for either of them. It's kind of like what the Old Testament says, and Jesus quotes in the New. This people, he says, draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Can you feel the double-mindedness in that? They draw near with their lips. Oh, God, we want your success. We must have your peace. But their hearts, our hearts, unfortunately, often, are not really over there where God is and where we have professed with our mouth that we want this peace. We're over here trying to do whatever we can to manufacture it for ourselves. That's double-mindedness. Often, it shows up for us in affirming that God is in charge while I am personally jockeying for control. That's kind of a key word for this idea of double-mindedness. It's about control. Whose control am I trusting and who really is in control in this matter? Control is essentially responsibility on steroids. It's taking God's responsibility and trying to do his work for him. Now, mind you, that doesn't mean we do not work, we, but we work together with God. And we remember that at the end of the day, it is God who is in control. Not me, not my doctor, not my boss, not my family, not my dad or mom. It is God who is in control. It's when we start ascribing control to anyone other than God that we end up split in our vision and useless for experiencing the peace of God. As long as someone else, or even yourself, is the one in charge of your peace, let me ask, how deep is that peace? Maybe you say, well, my peace is in a really good national political administration. Well, wait four years um, in America, or maybe wait six months, 
and you'll find it isn't there. We aren't looking for political saviors. We're not looking for the doctor to be the savior. I'm not even looking for myself to be the savior. You know what happens when I look to myself? I go along pretty convinced of my idolatrous level of godhood until I hit a really big storm. It's just exactly what the disciples had happen. And all of a sudden I realize I am not enough for this circumstance. Let's seek peace now. Let's not be double-minded and race up to a situation which we have no control over and finally realize we have no control over and then seek the peace of God. No, surrender that control to God now. So instead of affirming that God is in charge while I'm jockeying for control, let's commit our works to the Lord and allow him to establish our plans. That's what Proverbs 16.3 says. It says commit, or the idea is to roll to roll your work to the Lord and your plans, says the book of Proverbs, your plans will be established. Commit your works to the Lord and allow him to establish your plans. Who's in control for you right now? I mean, we know, and right now sitting here, we're all going to say, well, of course, it's God. But I'm asking something about what you really are practicing. I'm asking about what I'm practicing who really do I think is in control in my life? Do I really believe, practically believe, that in the middle of my circumstances, and I know there are storms for a number of you, and quite honestly, this last week was a fairly significant storm for me. Funny that I knew I was coming up on preaching on peace. In my storm, in your storm, who do you really trust to be in control? Are you still trying to work out all the details on your own? Or do you really trust the control of your wind and waves to God? Commit my works to the Lord. I commit my works to the Lord and I allow him to establish my plans. One of the reasons that we often don't experience peace is because we really aren't pouring our entire heart into pursuing the peace of God. We're pursuing the peace of God while we're also pursuing the peace of the world. There's another hindrance here, and that is that we have, we're ignorant as regarding the nature of the promises of God. Think about it this way. God's way is often to take us through trouble instead of around it. We thought that his peace would mean that we would be exempted from difficulties like this, especially from doubts and struggles and anxiety of soul on the inside. We thought that we should experience trouble on the outside, or that we should experience trouble on the outside seems reasonable, though undesirable, but that we should find an enemy lurking in our souls and discouraging us and telling us to quit and to give up, this seems completely outside the boundaries of what should be my experience. But remember the nature of the promises of God. We, we tend to assume God will take me around trouble instead of through it. Do you remember how God dealt with the people coming out of the land of Egypt? He took them right through trouble. In fact, he took them through 40 years of trouble. And that was after he took them through the uh, near attack of the Philistines who drowned in the Red Sea. and God was doing something. In fact, the Old Testament uses an interesting word to describe what God was doing as he took his people through trouble. It says he tested 
them. That's interesting. He tested them to prove what was really in their heart. Now, this does not mean that we do not desire to escape our undesirable circumstances. Don't get me wrong. We're not saying that we should stoically say, it is all okay, and I don't care if I'm suffering or not. That's ridiculous. Of course we care whether we're suffering or not. But the promises of God are not promises that always say you will not experience tribulation, but that in tribulation you will experience overcoming peace. Oh, that's chapter 16, verse 33 of the book of John, right? In the world, tribulation. That's the going through it. The only option, by the way, for not going through tribulation, according to Jesus' formula in John 16, 33, is what? Departure from the world. I mean, just to be honest, it's to die. You're going to have to get out of this world if you don't want to go through the tribulation that Jesus is talking about in John 16, 33. So don't look at the promises of God as a way to get out of the trouble primarily, but as a way to go through the trouble with great peace. So we can, like it says in Psalm 27, verses 8 and 14, wait patiently for the Lord, and in the middle of our troubles, set all our hope on him. This is what it says in a direct quote from Psalm 27. It says, you have said, speaking to the Lord from the psalmist, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Do you ever think about that famous story of Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail at night and singing? And we think God took them right out of the problem. Do you realize how they got there? Well, they were caught and beat and jailed and were in stocks for the night. They went through it. And they came out victorious on the other side. We tend to skip all the middles of all the stories. We do. We just tend to look at all the great endings. And there are great endings for the people of God. Because the promise of God is that at the end of the day, your life forever will be a life marked by peace. But it is not a peace that does not mean you came through no storms. You experience storms and in the storms experience peace. And because you experience peace in the midst of your storms, your life resonates to the glory of God. Think what would have happened on that night in the boat if, in fact, the disciples had not experienced a storm. Well, we would not have one of the most amazing demonstrations of the power of God in the Bible. Why did God do that? Well, I certainly can't tell you all the reasons, but I can tell you one. To give amazing glory to the Lord Jesus, who himself is God with power over wind and waves, and to pass to each one of us the way that we can connect to the God of peace in the middle of our storms. We would not have that if God had not taken them through the storm to get to the other side. There's one more, and that is that we get confused about the timing of God. You might remember that Peter was brave enough when Jesus said to take up the sword and Malchus paid the price for his zeal. But when it came to suffering, to unconscionable suffering, 
then it says all the disciples, including Peter, left Jesus and fled. With the sword in hand, it seemed entirely realistic that the Messiah they knew and loved, the healer whose power they had seen at work every day, would suddenly turn the tables on his enemies, raise a divine war cry, and obliterate his enemies with a word. And that day, Revelation 19, is coming. But it is not yet. And that confusion over coming, but not yet, is where we often stumble when it comes to peace in the middle of our trials and experience. We expect that God's presence means immediate deliverance from our trouble. I'm going to get out of this right now. But the idea, more accurately, is that of steadfastness, which we read about in the book of James. Steadfastness in trial, which is the ability to stay under The ability to stay under until God gives release. And so the ability to stay under, to remain under and give God the freedom to do his work is so important. It's kind of that picture of of Jesus and, and us in his great yoke. But we're not pawing and snorting and shaking our heads when we come to the end of the row and say, that was enough work for the day. Right, Master? Right, Master? Can we be done now? Let's be done now. I'm done with this trial. I'm finished with this work. Can we be done now? It is staying in the yoke and continuing to labor alongside him. I'm not a tremendous um, a workout guy, but I understand that there is a principle in working out, and it's called time under tension. Uh, it's one thing to say, I can lift this heavy weight one time. And there is a place for that. And it's called a one rep max, I believe. Donald can correct me after the service here if I'm wrong. But it's called a one rep max. It means this is all I can do one time. But a one rep max does not do the same thing in terms of building strength that time under tension will produce for you. Trials give us the opportunity to remain under tension together with God. And in so remaining under tensions, in so staying with him in the trial, we, get this, actually grow. We get stronger. We become more capable to do the work of God together with the God of the work. And so when it comes to God's timing, it's our opportunity to stay together with him. A lot of times, the thing that hinders us here is our expectation about what is going to take place and when. Long time ago, my family was traveling. Uh, We traveled a lot of the national parks in the uh, western side of the United States when I was a boy, and we ended up in Canada and Banff and Jasper. Some of you have undoubtedly been there. Amazing territory. And we were hiking a trail behind Lake Louise, that beautiful, amazingly colored lake there sitting at the base of mountains and glaciers and And as we hiked the trail, we were going up to what was at that time, I don't know what the trail was exactly, I think it was called Many Glaciers Trail, but I'm not sure on that. And as we hiked that trail, there was a tea house at the top. The problem was that it was longer than we expected to get there, and it was really cold. Those two factors combined to make us want to quit. Well, my dad never wants to quit, but maybe the rest of us wanted to quit, and um, so What really hurt us, though, probably as much as anything, was not just the length of the journey or the coldness of the way, but get this, it was that we had hikers meeting us, coming back. And you know what they told us? 
<laughs> it messed with our expectations terribly. They said, oh, it's just an easy half mile. <laughs> and it wasn't. And so when you, have you ever done it? When you come to the end, it's like, I think I'm almost done with this day. And it's been a really hard day. And I'm almost there. And then something happens, and the day goes on much longer than you expected. And it's the expectation that holds you in your lack of peace. Because you thought for sure you were almost done. This way it is with trials too, with outward circumstances that you're experiencing. You think, I think we're finally just about through this problem. And then, not yet. But God is giving you a chance for time under tension to experience the blessing of growth, and you have to give your expectations to God. So if I could encourage you this morning in this area of peace, give your expectation to God and, and allow him to fulfill his expectation in, of your life in his time. In other words, don't give God deadlines. I endure time under tension with an eye to the greater strength that he is working out for me. There's one last one that I want to show us this morning. One last roadblock to peace. We're saying, why, why is it that if God has given me this promise through Jesus, that he is leaving a personal legacy of peace for me, then why do I not experience it? And here's a fourth reason why. And that is because of a skepticism about the true nature of the character of God. You can hear it in the disciples' cry when they're in the boat. Do you remember what they said when they woke Jesus up? Don't you care that we're dying? They're impugning the character of God. They're saying, I think that your inaction means that you don't care or that you have forgotten or that you are not powerful enough to save us in this trouble. You with me? You don't care or you have forgotten or you are not powerful enough to meet me in this particular trial. That is skepticism regarding the nature of the character of God. Now the Psalms are full of people crying out in complaint to God about their circumstances. We're not making this a, uh, something that is overly simplified. But to say this, when the time is difficult. And we ask questions that the psalmists do, like, Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Or, Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Or, In the day of trouble I seek the Lord. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. In those moments we do not, we do not end there. We can cry out, I do not know where you are, O God. But we end with saying, in distress, I called, you called, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Or, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Or, in peace, this is a faith statement. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. We have many questions about what God will do, but we know the God who is doing it. And we believe 
that he, the great God who set his love upon us, will in fact come through. We tend to think that God's inaction means that he has forgotten us or doesn't care or does not have power to resolve our particular problem. But we take refuge in the truth about God as revealed in his word. The key word here really is refuge. We take that refuge in the character of God. We believe that he is who he said he is. In spite of what other people say or what our circumstances taunt, when they say, where is your God, we shelter in the unchanging person of who he really is. Psalm 11, verses 1 and 7 says this, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. I wonder what, I wonder what stories of grace, what testimonies of peace you'll have to tell your children and grandchildren and all the generations to come as you testify to what God can do in the middle of your storm. I wonder what God is working out in your life right now to demonstrate that he has power to still your storms and to give peace in the midst of your tempest. I wonder if you're ready to yield to his control even when his path is through the trouble. I wonder if you're ready to experience his solution to problems when the answer does not come immediately. I wonder if you'll take refuge in the God who has not forgotten you, in the God who is using time under tension to build strength and endurance because he loves you. Such a person will know the peace and confidence of a guaranteed safe return. Let's pray. Our Father, we've talked briefly this morning about peace and what it is that you've actually promised us from your own supply. We've seen how it can work and what beautiful things peace can do in our lives as we live in a world of chaos and in personal experiences that are no less chaotic so many times. But we're asking that you'd help us to actually step into the place of experiencing your peace, of knowing the power of the Jesus who is with us in our boat in the midst of our storm. We're asking that you would be honored and that as we spend time together as a body under tension, even in trial, in things that are distasteful and undesirable, that we would together experience the peace of God, and because we experience the peace of God, be a resonant glory to our God, to our entire community, to our families, to our children, to our grandchildren, and to the generations to come, a testimony to the fact that this is the people who knew their God and whose God gave them, in the midst of their chaotic experience, peace. We ask that for Jesus' sake, that the God who is with us, who does not forget us, whose character is unchanging, would be honored now and forever for Jesus' sake. Amen.